0: back. Once again, I'm your narrator and host, Marty Young of the Primrose Chronicles, and this is episode 27, I Should Have Been a Cowboy. The last couple of weeks of this podcast have examined how world events of health and danger impacted families like those on the northeast side of Indianapolis in the middle decade of the 20th century. The responses of so many listeners confirm that the young brood, of which I was eldest, were not alone in their struggles with the uncertainties of a disease on the verge of a pandemic, that would be polio, and a world on the brink of nuclear annihilation courtesy of the atomic bomb. There was a need for escape. In reaction to that need, households up and down Primrose and across the United States suddenly discovered the benefits of a new home appliance that they could not live without. It was that round picture screen encased in wood with knobs on the front, vacuum tubes inside, and an antenna attached with screws to its backside that sat atop its cabinet, which in turn rested on a stand about eye level with a person viewing it from a chair. In other words, usher in the golden age of television. It had happened on the national scene seemingly overnight, The monochromatic television entered the American home faster than any other invention to this point in the nation's cultural history. Its numbers grew from 6,000 sets in 1946 as World War II came to a close to over 12 million in 1955. That meant one in every two homes had a window on the world somewhere in their house, usually in the living room. Setting on a stand in front of a wall that had only months before been the home of a Victrola or a Motorola or the type. In other words, record players and radios soon took second billing to a device that would bring news, sports, variety shows, situational comedies, drama, and children's programming all together in one singular and listening opportunity with the screen A large 16 inches diagonal, if you knew when and where to tune in. The TV antenna, colloquially called rabbit ears, was maneuvered by a skilled member of the family, usually dad, from front to back, with both ears extended to full length and rotated until the picture on the screen came into clarity and stopped rolling. A family could come together and share an image from a distant location. It was magical. Now, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, Dad had built our first TV courtesy of an online course in which he enrolled from the cover of a matchbook. It went without saying that he took the reins in bringing in the best picture, even determining that different family members should sit in different spots of the living room in order to best affect picture reception. Part of that could be corrected by the application of aluminum foil folded into flags on one or both of the antenna extensions. It was a science, and had to be repeated whenever you switched between channels to watch a new offering on a new network, and Dad handled the process flawlessly. When he was not home, though, Others were not nearly as skilled, so sometimes the channel was never changed, rather than risk so much snow in the reception and the rolling of the picture without settling, all because none of us in the living room audience knew the magic movements. That was unfortunately frequent, since Indianapolis had four channels. There was NBC, CBS, and that Johnny-come-lately ABC, Channel 6, 8, and 13, along with an independent channel, WTTV, out of Bloomington, up the road. Now, before you self-designated fact-checkers flood the TPC Facebook page with your corrections as to which networks came to rest on which channels, and you find my recollections questionable, let me just say in my defense the history of television in Indianapolis indicates multiple swaps and drops and pickups of stations dependent on programming preferences and advertising power. But in truth, your responses in part let me know how broad this listening audience is becoming on any installment. So right away, and thanks in advance. A full treatment of the impact of programming's variety would extend this episode far beyond its normal listening time frame. So I want to invite you to a time frame that only covers about three to five hours, depending upon when we awoke, and it's limited to the single day of the week when we did not have school or church. That would be Saturday mornings. And the single fare offered was the various aspects of children's programming. Yes, there was variety, and a family of children at varying ages required a sharing of the viewing hours. For a brief time in my young life, I was the sole proprietor of the Saturday schedule. Mom was discovering, as most suburban moms realized early, that the television was sort of an adult companion during the days when the breadwinner was at work, as well as a viable, dependable babysitter. For the crumb crunchers when she needed to step away and still be just a few steps away. I reached school age, in other words, kindergarten, before there were two other younger youngs who also vied for TV viewing choices. You can imagine how unable we were to settle upon a single show as we grew in our vocal insistence. Little Brother Dave relished the rapid-action, big-movement, slapstick, antic cartoons, and all of that from his Johnny Jump-Up. He was too young in the early going to really recognize the difference, but with Mom navigating the channels on 30-minute intervals, the early Saturday morning hours found him mesmerized by the early morning cartoons, all of them new to him. The cartoons were, in fact, classics that had been in the theaters alongside feature films a mere 10 or 20 years prior. The difference was, in the theater, they were in color versus the black and white or green and white of the TV. And of course, there was the screen size, but still, there was Tom and Jerry, Heckle and Jekyll, music, melodies, Woody Woodpecker and the like. And it was usually during those hours that we ate our breakfast. Saturday mornings were special in another way at that point, That was the only morning that we did not eat at the kitchen table, but rather could take our milk-covered cereals in bowls, on metal trays depicting various Saturday morning TV shows, and eat on the floor of the living room in our PJs so as not to miss any moment of the action. The cereals? They were usually chosen by either the Saturday morning hero or personality, whether hand-drawn or real life, who hawked them on the small screen, or by what prize or toy was buried in the bottom of the box once all the processed grain had been eaten. We had no idea that we were being played by Madison Avenue. We were just excited to be sharing the meals of our favorite celebrities and playing with free toys covered with cereal dust likely to break within the week. Little conversation was given to nutrition in those days, only a lot about the sugar and the sweetness, and all selected by their spokespersons. Our pantry had multiple choices, usually partially full boxes at varying levels of staleness seems like about monthly. Mom put her foot down and said no more purchases until we ate what had already been bought. But the proper amount of staleness led to mom tossing the whole box out, only of course after the prize was removed, combined with her declaration that she was never getting any special cereal for us again and we would only be eating the Bisco shredded wheat or Kellogg's bran flakes that she and dad enjoyed." That lasted about one shopping trip, during which two or three of us wore her down on the breakfast aisle, whining for our choices until she succumbed to our incessant begging. Following that, the pantry would be stocked again, the boxes would picture the latest portraits, and hold the couldn't-live-without toys. Yep, we knew how to play our mother. Wow, that was a rabbit trail I didn't expect to hop down. Let's let's get back to Saturday mornings and the unique programming of those hours. As I was saying, by mid-morning, David was ready for a nap and Mom was ready for him to take one, and then the competition for the TV became between Nancy and I. Only two years my junior, there was some overlap in our interests, allowing a few shows to be watched without conflict. Most of those were the ones that combined live hosts maybe a junior audience, and either puppets or marionettes. The Howdy Doody show fell into that category with both of us imagining being part of a virtual peanut gallery, answering Buffalo Bob's opening question, hey kids, what time is it? Along with the studio audience when we would say, it's Howdy Doody time. I usually had to go along with another show or two like that, just to show my patience and my ability to share TV time. But eventually, Maybe after Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop or Rudy Kazooty, Mom would invite her sole daughter into the kitchen to make cookies or something, and then the TV, and its viewing options were all mine. In future years, I would be more than ready to go outside and hang with my buddies, but in my early elementary years, and even into fourth and fifth grade, on the biblical seventh day of the week, My attention was directed to the myriad of cowboy westerns that would fill the airways until afternoon, and then sports programming took over. Only then would I change into play clothes and meet my buddies. Afternoon would be soon enough to discuss the programs and even reenact portions that were memorable. Until then, I would join kids across America in returning to those thrilling days of yesteryear. I sat in rapt attention in front of that small screen, not too close so as to go blind, but I was waiting to spy the fiery horse with the speed of light, the cloud of dust, and hear a hearty hi-o silver, and with that, to know that the Lone Ranger would ride again, at least for the next half hour. Various episodes of Cowboy Heroes came in half-hour doses for the rest of the morning each playing their part to tame the Old West, bring law and order to the Badlands, and to put the bad guys behind bars, all the while righting the wrongs done against the fine citizens of myriad towns and territories in the desert southwest. Roy Rogers, King of the Cowboys, a top trigger, and Dale Evans, Queen of the West, riding buttermilk with Bullet, the Wonder Dog, running alongside burst across that little screen, and I had my own front row seat. Seemed there was always trouble brewing just beyond the rail fences of the double R bar ranch, and they would have 30 minutes to right the wrongs and vanquish the bad guys. That would be the recipe for every episode's action, be it at the hands of the masked man with his Indian companion Tonto, who never hung around for words of thanks or even ever revealed his identity, or it could be the singing cowboy Gene Autry. I sat enthralled because I knew they were the good guys. How'd I know? They wore the white hats. There were no surprises. The bad guys in the black hats would never wound them with a shot from their six-shooter, even when it inexplicably fired 10 or 12 bullets at them. Eventually... They would have to throw their gun at Jean and Roy, enter into a lopsided fistfight that would end in rapid fashion, two hits. Gene or Roy would hit the villain, and the villain would hit the ground. The damsel would be saved, the bank money would be returned, and each of them would ride off into the sunset. The grateful town folks, why they'd be left to ask, who was that masked man? Or listen to the haunting sounds of Happy Trails, or Back in the Saddle Again, and hear them wane in the distance. Until next week. Funny thing, I watched many more westerns as the years went on and I added my enjoyment with the variety. Wild Bill Hickok was probably why I asked mom to get sugar pops because his likeness was on the box. Others I tried to catch occasionally when the others were recent repeats. I'd need help. But channels were often turned to watch Cisco Kid and Rin Tin Tin and Cochise, all kind of different in the Western genre. The Kid, because it dealt with Mexican themes. Rennie, because it featured a German Shepherd dog and a U.S. Cavalry outpost. And Cochise, because it shared a different kind of the Old West, that of the Native American Indian. But I watched them all as the opportunity arose because they were the protagonists, seemingly without fault, always standing for fairness, justice, and the protection of the weak and powerless. Hopalong Cassidy actually was my first cowboy memory since mom and dad had listened to his adventures on the radio with William Boyd in the title role, so that one of the earliest photos of my Christmas haul in front of our tree has me in a full hopalong outfit with gun belt, holster, and pearl-handled revolvers. Oh, and Cassidy was the exception to that earlier rule. He was the consummate good guy, but he also wore all black. I guess when you're first on TV, you can wear whatever you want. Now Nancy was getting older, and she too became more and more interested in adventure series. This meant that more and more of the Saturday morning viewing needed to center around females and strong feminine roles. That was easy with Roy and Dale. Dale shot and rode and sang as good as her cowboy husband, Roy, so that was a regularly shared feature for brother and sister. But soon added to the lineup would have to be Annie Oakley with her hard-riding, trick-shooting, and suspense-filled storylines. Nancy even had an Annie Oakley costume, complete with fringe skirt and blouse, boots, hat, and rifle. Another show that had a prominent girl lead was Sky King who weekly came out of the western sky in his Cessna airplane songbird landed at the Flying Crown Ranch to be met by his niece, Penny. It took place in the western state of Arizona, but obviously was decades removed from the storylines of the more traditional horse operas, as they were sometimes derogatorily called. I could tolerate the anachronistic intrusion into my viewing morning because Penny was cute, and I was developing a crush. Not like a net, but okay, call me fickle. A photographer one day in the summer wandered into our neighborhood with a Shetland pony in tow, going door to door, asking if families wanted their children's pictures taken in cowboy garb and atop the small equine. In a moment of weakness, and because two was a bargain, mom had pictures taken of both her two oldest. For me, It was just one more photo for the growing album of Firstborn Milestones, but it lit a fire in my sister towards all things horsey. I mention that because in addition to a ceramic collection that grew through the years atop her chest of drawers, it also meant that we had to fit at least a couple of shows whose horses were distinctively non-human. My friend Flicka and Fury came to mind and they were the first additions to her furniture top corral. As the years passed, the younger brothers moved through the same rites of passage in regards to Saturday's schedule. That also meant that I was also viewing the same shows and the same episodes and the same heroes, and that began to take its toll. So when I had access to the viewing choice, I discovered and convinced the Youngers to shows that were still action and adventure, just moving a little bit out of the Western genre. At first, it was Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. His husky dog, King, had the attention of all. Circus Boy also checked all the boxes. Captain Gallant of the Foreign Legion was a harder sell, but the other captain, Captain Midnight, had Ovaltine going for him as well as the secret decoder ring and message each week. The adventures of Robin Hood made it cool to use a bow and arrow and basically anything else that didn't require gunpowder. And then there was Sheena, queen of the jungle. Well, you can probably imagine why a prepubescent boy would be fine if Nancy wanted a show with yet another heroine lead. You might say we had a pretty well-rounded landscape of television viewing. As the number of kids in the family grew, so did the television screen size jumping all the way to 21 inches, which helped when the entire family came together after dinner. Now those shows and their variety deserve their own acknowledgement, but not in this episode. What does bear mentioning is that by the end of that decade, Westerns had moved from the radio to Saturday mornings, to over 100 in number reaching those evening audiences. Gathering an even greater audience than variety shows, situational comedies, live sporting events, documentaries, or news. But I had gotten to cut my teeth on those first offerings. Now, I usually don't opine about matters that are shared in installments of the Primrose Chronicles. But because I've got some time and I think I'm on to something, I want to share a couple of observations. All of these that follow, along with some that I'll not delve into, fall under the umbrella of the belief that I want to state for your consideration. And it's this. The Westerns, and their cowboys, I embraced in their many forms, whether as Saturday mornings' kitty matinees at the Vogue or uptown nightly TV programming of the same variety, which Dad also readily watched. Comic books and lunchboxes all helped to define my character, as well as a generation of Americans who would soon move into positions of responsible citizenry. So let me make my case: westerns, by their very script. Sought to teach good values of honesty and integrity, hard work, and yes, to some degree, even racial tolerance, if you think about it. There was an encouragement to succeed against seemingly impossible odds, to seek the support of teamwork and others, and, of course, there was justice for all. Since those years, there's been a lot of mocking of the one-dimensional characters in the simplistic storylines of so many of the shows of that era, especially Westerns. Some have likened them to modern morality plays depicted in the Renaissance literature. And I guess that's a good observation. Roy and Jean, Hopalong, The Lone Ranger, they were all strong, reliable, clear-headed, and decent heroes. Everything was neatly wrapped. At the end of each show, a moral lesson was taught and could easily be learned. It was obvious in its application that it became known as the Cowboy Code of Ethics. I remember my Gene Autry lunchbox had his version of the code printed on the inside lid. The cowboy must respect women, parents, and their nation's laws. So, every day at lunch, as I pulled out my thermos, unwrapped my sandwich, opened my chips and dessert, I was again reminded of how to act as an American boy. This, coupled with my standard Boy Scouts, and of course, church youth group, supported my parents and their values that, with only a few lapses, hold central today. I know Garth and Chris Ledoux ask musically as a warning to be careful what you wish for when they sing What You're Gonna Do With A Cowboy. And Willie Nelson even warns, Mom, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. I take the tack of Toby Keith. Maybe not that I should have been a cowboy, but certainly that there were worse characters to emulate growing up. I guess a steady diet of westerns did contribute to my dental problems. As I think back on it, sugared cereals, candy companies, and sweet-flavored milk drinks appeared as commercial breaks throughout those early weekend hours. I guess that was the downside to my ethics development—wonderful morals, not so healthy eating habits. I'm at this point fighting the urge to rattle off the number of jingles that promoted those products. I think instead. I'm going to turn it into a contest on the Fans of TPC Facebook page. It would be another memory jogger to compare notes on. Could be fun to keep an eye on that page as well as the Primrose Chronicles official Facebook page. I hope maybe you'll join in that adventure. But for today, this has just been an early look at how I began my weekends as a kid. As I got older... I left the shows to my younger siblings and didn't get up until a lot later, usually just in time for American Bandstand or Baseball's Game of the Week. But Kenny and Arlene, Bunny and Eddie, Pat and Carmen from Dick Clark's show, those Philadelphia teens who tried to teach us to dance the current steps and inform us which songs were easy to dance to and had a good beat. Even the uniformed players of my favorite teams who gave me goals for... Performance and maybe a future occupation, they could not take the place of those first introductions to Western lawmen and their virtues via the three or four channels available for our discovery of an outside world, fictional as they may have been. So, partners, as always, it's been my hope that you enjoyed this bit of nostalgia. See y'all in the next roundup of memories grazing in my recollections of Primrose Lane. Primrose Avenue. Hope you'll be here to circle up the wagons again next week when we look at Turkey Day, celebrated through the decades of this boomer's youth. It will culminate with a question of the generation. Where were you when you heard about, and I'm sure you know where that's going. Till then, pour yourself a bowl of sugar smacks, mix up a glass of Nestle's Quick or Ovaltine, and look through the catalogs of the new Sears Christmas Wish Book, circling your Christmas wants. It should have arrived by now. Blessings.